Then this morning, congregation, your Bibles, we would encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be reading from verses 1 through 6. In your pew Bible, you can find this on page 1,345. Uh, We note that we are just simply continuing uh, our exposition, our consecutive exposition of the book of Ephesians. Uh, We also note that in God's providence, uh, we plan to administer the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. And so this morning we have a preparatory service. We'll be reading the preparatory form. And I've often been struck by how remarkable God's providence is, even in the selection uh, of text. Uh, Months ago, when we began this series through Ephesians, I can assure you that I did not sit down with a calendar and calculate that we would come to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 on the morning of preparatory. But God did calculate it. And so we find ourselves focusing on this theme of Christian unity on the week of preparatory. And congregation, the Lord has a purpose for that. That we would be forced, you might say, or led to reflect upon this theme of the unity of the church as we humbly but also with anticipation Uh, make preparations to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. A communal meal, yes, between ourselves and our God, but a communal meal also between us as spiritual sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters of the family of God. And so we read the inspired Word of God as written by the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Thus far, our reading from the Word of God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the testimony of Scripture itself, along with the testimony of experience, presents us with the sad reality that oftentimes within the church militant here in this earth and in this life, There is brokenness, there is division, there is even perhaps bitterness. You can think of the church in Corinth as it was split into various factions, some saying, well, we follow Paul, others saying, well, we follow Apollos. A third group said, well, we are those who follow Peter, and a fourth said, we follow no man but only the Lord Jesus Christ. Experience also testifies uh, that there is, at times, the experience of division within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul knew this. You might say he had a front row seat many times to the experience of division within the church. Now, of course, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write what he writes in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, but he is also motivated by his pastoral desire 
his pastoral desire that the church in Ephesus might have life and might have it abundantly. And you'll notice the tone. Now, you might say the tone, this is a written word, and yet the tone of Paul's pastoral heart comes through with the words that the Holy Spirit gives to him. I beseech you, he says. Now, the Apostle Paul had apostolic authority. He could have just simply said, I command you, be united. And certainly, there is the imperative mood behind the words that he writes. But there is this pastoral, I beseech you, I plead with you, And that's what I want to do this morning also. I want to beseech you. I want to plead with you. You might even say I want to beg you. Not in regards to any one specific situation. But in regards to the reality that the church militant always has issues, potential divisions. I plead with you to be united in the Lord, especially especially as we anticipate receiving the administration of the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning. And as I make this plea with you this morning, I make the plea also to my own heart for the unity of the church. Because the potential for division, the potential for selfish animosity also affects ministers of the Word. Oftentimes, ministers are divided against themselves. And many times, the cause of that division is pride and self-centeredness and a desire to have things the way that we want things. So we're not immune to the potential for division. So as I plead with you, I plead also with myself for the unity of the church. We'll notice, first of all this morning, the duty of unity, and then secondly, the characteristics for unity, and then thirdly, the reason for unity. So the duty, the characteristics, and the reason for unity. I would encourage you to keep your Bible open this morning, although we're not going to exhaustively look at every phrase within this section. Notice the second word, therefore. Chapter 4 marks a transition from what we call the theological indicatives, the truths about God and the truths about the grace of God and the truths about the salvation that God has accomplished, the truths that have been unfolded in chapters 1 through 3 about the glory of the work of Christ and the result of that work of Christ of the church. Paul then says, therefore, because that is true, because those theological realities are certain, and chapter 4 begins the transition into the moral imperatives. Because this is true, chapters 1 through 3, therefore you must do this. And notice also that he emphasizes the fact that our doctrine must impact our life. Our doctrine must impact our life. 
so that we might say that people ought to see what we believe by the way that we conduct ourselves. If we say we believe in one church, people who observe us ought to note that, yes, they conduct themselves in such a way that it's evident they do believe that there is one church. If we profess that there is only one Lord, those who hear our public verbal profession of that truth ought to be able to look at the way we conduct ourselves and say, yes, we, we see that these people believe there is only one Lord and one Master, one head of the church, Jesus Christ, and Him alone. There must be, there should be, there ought to be a consistency between what we say we believe and the way that we conduct ourselves as members of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this duty of unity is based upon a relationship to Christ. Verse 1, how does Paul identify himself? Think of all of the things that he could have said. He could have said, I, the premier apostle. I, the world evangelist. I, who have suffered nearly indescribable sufferings for the cause of the gospel. He could have said, I who was caught up into the third heaven, I who has received revelations which no one else has received. But he doesn't say anything of that. He says, I, the prisoner of the Lord. And because he recognized that his identity was just that, someone who was a prisoner of the Lord, and that word indicates a, a binding relationship, a binding union that brings about an obligation to serve that person. So the entirety of Paul's being and the entirety of Paul's activity was all bound up in this conscious awareness that he was not his own. But he was bound to Jesus Christ, and he was bound to serve Jesus Christ, so that Paul's will did not matter, because he was a prisoner of the Lord. And the only thing that mattered was what the Lord would have Paul to do. And that's also the spiritual mentality that by the grace of God we must continually cultivate. And I know it sounds harsh and it sounds blunt. And so I encourage you to search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. But especially in all aspects of our life, but especially in our interaction as a church, as a gathered body of those who profess to belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, the question must always, always, always be, what does Christ desire? What does Christ want for my person, for my life, for my activity? And when we begin to understand this, and when this begins to be the heartbeat of our thinking, then we will appreciate that Christ desires true spiritual unity to prevail within his household. 
Christ desires unity, a oneness in understanding, and a oneness in the exercise of the Christian life. And so the Apostle Paul, because of his relationship as being a prisoner of the Lord, has this desire to fulfill the duty of unity, uh, but also in connection to the call of Christ. You notice this uh, word flows out repeatedly. In verse 1, you see it already twice. I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. And it flows again in verse 4 uh, and, and other examples. The Apostle Paul recognized that the members of the church were not simply members of the church by, the, by their own initiative. It's not just that members of the church wake up one day and go, oh, I think I'm going to join the local church. I think that'd be a nice activity to fill my weekends and maybe some of my spare time. You know, I'm a member of this society and I'm a part of that organization. I think I'll add the church to my resume of activities. Nor was it just simply this, well, I was born and baptized into the church. I've always been a member of the church. It was something much deeper in the mind of Paul. Paul recognized a divine call. Theologians speak of an effectual call, the spiritual work of God that transforms a person's soul, bringing them out of the bondage of sinful darkness into the marvelous light of God's redemptive grace. This calling. And indeed, that, that's tied up in the very definition of what it means to be a church. The word in the New Testament for church, ecclesia, means to call out. And so you might say there is an inspired play on words here. Paul is reminding the church that as the church, your identity is that you have been called by God's grace from out of the spiritual death that characterizes the unbelieving world, and you have been called unto the Lord Jesus Christ and united to Him by faith, and you are therefore a spiritual prisoner. Not in a negative sense, but in the most glorious, liberating sense, you are a spiritual prisoner to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that congregation, I plead with you, is the basic understanding of the duty behind the unity of the church. Why should we strive? Why should we endeavor to be unified? Because Christ has called us from out of the depths of darkness into the light of His grace. And He has bound us to Himself. Well, if we then have said something of the duty of unity, notice in our second point the characteristics for unity. Because to be honest, at times unity seems impossible. How can we possibly be unified especially given the fact that here in the militant aspect of the church, we're still characterized by sin. Each and every single one of us still influenced by our own sinful desires. Well, the Apostle Paul, underneath again the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, details the characteristics for unity in verses 2 and 3. 
He beseeches, he pleads, he urges the members of the Ephesian church to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We just simply note that this is extremely countercultural because the world constantly says, take care of yourself. Fight for yourself. Advance your own rights. Demand your own privileges. The message of the world is if you don't look after yourself, who will look after yourself? But the message of the Word of God is radically different. You want to know the first step towards unity in any relationship? Lowliness. What exactly is that word lowliness? A synonym would be humility. They say in regards to real estate, there are three key factors. Location, location, location. I would present to you that in regards to unity, there are three necessary requirements. Humility, humility, humility. Now, humility is not the same as self-deprecation. Humility is not walking around saying, I'm a worthless person. What is humility then? Humility is understanding who I am, especially in relationship to who God is. And also, humility is then understanding who my neighbor is in relationship to who God is. Humility is the spiritual perception of who God is in his transcendent glory. And then recognizing that I and my fellow man are both image bearers of God. And in the church, it is recognizing that I and my fellow man are both redeemed saints, redeemed by the one same God, redeemed by the one same sacrifice of Jesus Christ, redeemed by the one and the same effectual grace, indwelt by the one and the same Holy Spirit, possessing and professing one and the same faith. And there is then, in this lowliness, not an advancement of myself in front of my fellow Christian, but rather the understanding that we are equal, that we are equal in the sight of God, that we have equal standing within the church. And and then with this lowliness of mind, this humility, this proper view of oneself that does not think more highly of oneself than the other. You can think of Philippians 2 verse 3 where the Apostle Paul says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. So basically, don't let any of your actions be motivated by self-desire. Because that's not lowliness of mind. That's not humility. But rather, Paul continues, in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, if you want a challenge, this is it. Esteem others 
better than yourself. Because if we're honest, it is so, so easy for us to think that we are better than everyone else. That we have the better insights. That we have the better knowledge. That we have the better gifts. That we have the better skills. I'm reminded of this sometimes in a practical illustration. When I watch basketball at home with a few of the other members of the family, and I criticize the players, and I'm reminded, Dad, you couldn't even begin to play. I acknowledge that now. But at times I esteem my own abilities to analyze the game of basketball even better than those who spend all of their time coaching and playing. Why is that? Because for the moment, I think that I know better. I really honestly, in that moment, think that I know better. And if we're honest, we have that many, many, many a time in life. There's times driving down Washington Avenue in the morning, I think 25 miles an hour is the most unreasonable speed limit because I'm in a hurry. And I think 35 at least would be better. And why do I think that I know better? Because I'm annoyed by the 25 mile an hour. Because I want to go how fast I want to go. Because I have places to get to. I have a schedule to keep. And so when my focus is all about me, I'm very, very, very quick to think that I know the best. But that shouldn't characterize our perspective in the church. Let each of us esteem the other person better than ourselves. Not only lowliness, but also a gentleness. Uh, This word, gentleness, and, and these are close, lowliness and gentleness, close, but exactly, not exactly the same. Gentleness is a considerateness. Consider one another. Not just focused on our own ideas, thoughts, desires. But let us think of one another. And then also, of course, there needs to be this qualification. When we read of these characteristics, if we immediately think, well, if everyone else just had these characteristics, then we could be unified. That's a symptom of selfish pride. If you go, absolutely, I agree. If only he, if only she would be more lowly, more gentle, and more long-suffering, then everything would be fine. You see, that, that's sometimes also the tactic that we use. We say, absolutely, I agree with this wholeheartedly. If only this person or if only that group of people would be more characterized by lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, then all would be well. And I would submit to you that that reaction is evidence 
of a lack of personal humility. If you think everything would be better if everyone else would just be more lowly, that's a symptom of pride. That's a symptom of arrogance. That's a symptom of foolishness, and that's a recipe for disunity in any relationship. These characteristics are best exemplified by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of that? What does Jesus Christ himself say in Matthew 11, verse 29? I am gentle. It's the same word. I am meek and lowly in heart. And in the Old Testament, I'm always struck that Moses was described as the meekest person on the earth. Now, I know that he had his sinful shortcomings, but do you remember the passage when Israel had sinned and rebelled yet once again, grumbling and complaining about Moses and about his leadership, and the Lord comes down and he says, I'm going to wipe them all out, Moses, and I'm going to begin all over with just you. Our sinful pride would go, good idea. Yeah, just eradicate this whole group and let's start over with me, myself. But Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, Lord, do not destroy them. He did that out of his meekness. And the Lord Jesus Christ also is characterized by this meekness, as should the people of God. Matthew 5, verse 5, speaks about those who will inherit the earth. And what does it say? Does it say those who advance their own agenda shall inherit the earth? Those who take care of themselves first shall inherit the earth? Those who always fight for what they want shall inherit the earth? Those who always desire the preeminence shall inherit the earth? It says the meek, the meek shall inherit the earth. Where does this meekness come from? Where does this lowliness come from? It's not something that we generate within ourselves. Rather, it is the result of the Spirit of God working within our hearts. You can think of Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, the fruit, or you might say the testimony, the result of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice right in the middle there is this long-suffering. And in this week of self-examination, there is, of course, the danger of being overly introspective, of looking in and upon ourselves to the point that we despair. But with our Bibles and with our prayers... Honestly, let us ask ourselves, is there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit and a long-suffering and a love and a joy and a peace and a kindness and a goodness and a faithfulness and a gentleness and a self-control? Because the opposite are the fruits of the flesh. And the Apostle Paul lists those also Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. So you have the works of the flesh, sinful works, and you have the works, the fruits of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is that which 
is the characteristics for true unity within the church. But why should we be united? The Apostle Paul explains this in what we consider briefly in our third point. Why should we be united? Verses 4 through 6, and there's a number of phrases here that you could spend quite a bit of time on. We just want to try to take an overall view of the general theme. And it's good for us to conclude, I believe, with the reason for unity because we might be prone to say, I don't see any reason for unity, at least not with him, at least not with her, at least not with them. We like to pick and choose who we're going to be unified with. But in the church, you don't always get that privileged opportunity. We don't get to pick and choose our immediate family members. Boys and girls, did you get to pick your brother or pick your sister? No. You had no choice in the matter. Your brother's your brother. Your sister's your sister. You had nothing to say in it. And the same by and large is true of the local church. You don't get to pick your spiritual brothers and sisters. Who does the picking? God. Remember, prisoner of the Lord, called, called by God. So the reason for unity is there is one God. And there is a deep theological truth behind this, the intertrinitarian relationship. There is one only God, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And those three persons have eternally dwelt in perfect, uninterrupted unity of purpose, unity of affections. The Father delights in the Son, the Son delights in the Father, the Spirit delights in the Father and the Son in an unbroken triangle of community. And the church is the bride of Christ, and the church is to reflect something of the nature of God himself. And so the Apostle Paul says, you know, Christians, you profess to a world that is guilty of polytheism, idolatry, and this was especially true in the Roman context. The city of Ephesus, they had all of their gods. The Romans had all of their gods. And now here's this Christian community saying, we believe in one God. Really, the Romans would say, prove it. Prove it by your unity. And you can think of the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17, where Christ himself intercedes and prays to the Father, Father, I will, I desire that they would be one. They would, referring to the disciples, referring to the church, the, the Lord, Jesus Christ, desires the unity of the church. Why? So that the world may know that the Son and the Father are one. Have you ever thought about that? The way that we interact one with another is saying something to the observing world. It's either bringing forth a testimony of the unity of God, or it's telling a lie. If the Christian church cannot be one and display that unity to the unbelieving world, then when we go with our message of evangelism and say, 
world, there is one only God and there's one only way of salvation. There's one only Savior. The world's going to look and say, well, then why in the world can't you all get along? You talk about this one faith, this one spirit, this one baptism. The scoffing world will say, I don't believe it. You're hopelessly divided. You have just as many divisions within the church as we have outside in the world. You're just as at odds with each other as we are out here in the world. And that's not what Christ wants. Christ wants the world to look in at the church as the light that shines in the darkness and in the midst of human brokenness to be a testimony that there is unity. Not uniformity. It's not that we're all exactly the same. But unity through lowliness, through humility, unity and faith. Because there is one only way of salvation. There's only one way to be reconciled to God. And that's through the one Savior, by the work of the one and only Spirit. And now there is a danger. There's a danger anytime we hear the Word of God proclaimed. And that danger is summarized by the parable that the Lord Jesus Christ gave of the sower and the seed. The word has gone forth. Not perfectly, but you judge with open Bibles whether it has been faithfully proclaimed. And if it has been faithfully proclaimed, what will the result be? Sadly, Jesus said that sometimes the seed is sown, but the cares of the world quickly steal it away. So the danger is that some of us would leave this place of worship and no more than five minutes down the road have forgotten the essence of what was communicated. Don't let that danger become a reality. Another danger is that Satan would come through his tactics and steal the seed away. And I can tell you that the number one tactic of Satan is to insert a yeah, but into your mind. Unity of the church, yes, but the preacher didn't understand my situation. The preacher doesn't understand what happened years ago decades ago. The preacher doesn't understand. Don't let Satan insert a yeah, but. Go home like Bereans. With open Bibles, with bent knees, with praying hearts. Examine if these things are so. And endeavor and that word is an exhaustive word. Do all that is within your power and your strength. It's a word that was at times used in the Greco-Roman sport of wrestling. Give all that you have for the unity of the church because there is one Lord there is one faith. Amen.